Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Hurricane Harvey's winds and record rains have decimated portions of East Texas, and that includes that state's agricultural output. And there's ramifications for California's farmers. You might have noticed the recent rise in the price of fuel, for example. The Sacramento Valley's processing tomato crop is down this year. We'll tell you why. Subsurface drip irrigation for alfalfa. What are the advantages? Want more bees in your fields and orchards? We talk with the University of California expert on the role of wildflowers to attract bees to the farm. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The many impacts of Tropical Storm Harvey include damage to crops in southeastern Texas, and that includes the cotton crop. American Farm Bureau market analysts say crop conditions are likely to deteriorate as a result of the storm. Texas leads the nation in cotton production. They represent about 40% of the U.S. crop. California ranks fifth at about 5%, with most of its crop now rated in excellent condition at last report. With more about the impact of Harvey on agriculture, here's the USDA's Rod Bain. The full impacts of Hurricane Harvey on Texas agriculture, although most likely unknown for weeks, maybe even months, are expected to be devastating. Andy Vestal has seen a lot in 40 years as a Texas AgriLife Extension expert, yet ends his last week on the job at Texas State Emergency Management Headquarters in the middle of perhaps one of the Lone Star State's worst hurricanes ever. He says livestock producers used to such weather events usually know where the high ground is to place cattle and where to avoid the rivers, creeks, and gullies susceptible to flash flooding. However, based on the forecast just before Harvey hit landfall... The National Weather Service, their quote was, we'll expect to see water where we have never seen water before. Crop damage is expected to include cotton. Although some of the crop along the coastline has been harvested, farther inland where the harvest was set to begin or had just started, we should expect certain impactful damages to that crop. And in terms of other crops... There will be some sardine, there will be some rice issues, and there may be some citrus issues in some areas of South Texas and some of the produce growing areas south and west of San Antonio. USDA staff in Harvey-impacted areas are ready to assist as needed, providing service and programs for farmers and ranchers during and well after this natural disaster. Farm Service Agency Texas State Acting Director Eddie Trevino talks about some of his agency's programs available in disaster recovery efforts. Texas being a major cattle state, the Livestock Indemnity Program could be beneficial in trying to assist some of our producers. Once we assess the damage and take care of our farms and our operations, we perhaps look into the non-insured crop disaster assistance program, which can help producers with some financial assistance on some non-insurable crops. And the Natural Resources Conservation Service offers assistance after a post-disaster assessment of damaged watersheds and lands. This is NRCS Acting Chief Leonard Jordan. Emergent Watershed Program is designated and designed to assist producers in declared areas. And then we have our normal Environmental Quality Incentive Program that we can offer. More information about USDA's wide range of disaster assistance programs is available through local service centers, regional and state offices, and online at www.usda.gov slash topics slash disaster.
I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. A new estimate shows the California tomato harvest coming up a little smaller than originally expected and a little later than last year. The government report tracks processing tomatoes, those that are used for ketchup, salsa, and other products. The report says the tomato crop will be about 2.5% smaller than first estimated. Spring rains, then summer heat have affected the crop, with shipments running 22% slower than last year. USDA meteorologist Brad Rippey says Harvey has overshadowed one issue that is still a concern. The western United States is back into the heat. We are experiencing some of the uh, similar conditions that we saw a bit earlier in the summer across northern California and the northwest where temperatures have soared above 100 in many of the interior valleys. In other words, conditions remain ripe for wildfires. But we still have a bit of a tinderbox across much of the west. We have the grasses and brush that came from last winter and are now fully cured and until we start seeing the seasonal rains move back in this fall and then snowfall after that, we do maintain that threat of wildfires, especially anytime we have low humidity, gusty winds and high temperatures, which is exactly what we have right now in parts of the West. So he says as we move into September, the wildfire threat remains active. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. In a major step towards sustainable groundwater management here in California, more than 99% of the state's high and median priority groundwater basins have met a key deadline to form local groundwater sustainability agencies. This is under the state's landmark Sustainable Groundwater Management Act of 2014. The next step for these groundwater sustainability agencies is to create and implement groundwater sustainability plans. These will describe needed actions as well as implementation measures that will bring basins into balance levels of pumping and recharge in the time frame outlined in the plan. Basins identified as critically overdrafted are required to have sustainability plans in place by January 31st of 2020. All other high and medium priority basins have until January 31st, 2022 to adopt plans. It'll be a while, though, before the plan is fully implemented. Plans will be reviewed by the Department of Water Resources and will be continuously updated to ensure sustainable management of the state's groundwater by the year 2042. Groundwater accounts for a third of the state's water supply on average and serves as a critically important source in dry years. A proposal submitted to the Federal Crop Insurance Corporation by the American Farm Bureau Federation, American Farm Bureau Insurance Services, and others would provide a revenue-based insurance option for dairy farmers, different from the current margin-based insurance options available. AFBF Market Intelligence Director John Newton explains how the dairy revenue protection insurance concept will work for dairy farmers. For the last year, we've been working on developing this new concept plan of insurance, and it allows a farmer to insure the revenue from sales of milk during a particular quarter. So they would use futures market prices and expected production to identify an expected revenue and then purchase insurance protection on that expected revenue. And if the actual revenue happened to fall below that guarantee, a farmer would receive an indemnity for that. Currently, insurance programs offered to dairy farmers all use margin-based instruments. The margin insurance programs protect the difference between the milk price and the feed cost, not revenue. Newton says the most successful tools that farmers are utilizing today are revenue-based 
based instruments like the AFBF proposal. We've built a product that allows them to select the value of the milk in the insurance contract, either based on class three and four milk prices or based on the milk components, recognizing that a majority of farms across the country are paid for the components in the milk, not a standardized price for the milk that they produce. He says AFBF has talked with farmers across the U.S. that support the insurance concept, which he expects will be submitted to USDA for review later this fall. A lot of farmers really think a revenue-based approach would really work well for their operation, especially in years like 2015 and 2016 when we saw milk prices fall by nearly 50%. And we've gotten a lot of positive feedback on the survey that we have online to further develop the product and make sure that we ultimately present something to the FCIC that's going to work for dairy farmers. The FCIC Board of Directors did vote to fund partial development of this, and we expect to deliver the product later this fall to the USDA for additional consideration. Dairy farmers can learn more about the proposal and provide their comments at www.farmbureausellscropinsurance.com. Michael Clements, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Alfalfa continues to be cut and baled. Safflower is drying in the field. Sorghum for silage is being cultivated and irrigated. Cotton was blooming and forming bowls and continues to be irrigated. Corn for silage is being harvested. Black-eyed beans were maturing and nearing harvest. Rice was heading ahead of schedule. Peach, nectarine, pear, fig, and plum harvest is ongoing. Harvested stone fruit orchards were pruned and topped. Table grape harvest continues as wine grape harvest began. Valencia orange and finger lime harvest is ongoing. Irrigation and repair of irrigation systems is always ongoing. Olives were developing well. Almond harvest is underway. Walnut and pistachio orchards continue to be irrigated. Both mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in the orchards. In San Mateo County, acres of beans and peas were in full bloom, ready to set pods. In Calusa, Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo County, processing tomatoes are being harvested. In Tulare County, certified producers were picking tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers for sale at local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers, and cucumbers continue to be harvested, packed, and shipped domestically. Sweet corn harvest continues and is available for sale at roadside stands as well as local farmers' markets. Low elevation non-irrigated pasture and rangeland quality continues to deteriorate. Range conditions were reported to be fair to very poor. As the nutritional quality of range grasses diminished, supplemental feeding has increased. Some cattle were moved to higher elevations. Sheep are grazing on retired pasture as well as in dormant alfalfa. Of the common California crops grown, alfalfa consumes the largest amount of water. Its use can exceed 46 inches of water per year. This fact combined with the real opportunity to drive solid yield increases are the main reason a lot of alfalfa growers in California are very interested in using drip irrigation on alfalfa. And of course, yes, that key benefit of irrigating alfalfa with subsurface drip irrigation is the ability to irrigate during and immediately following harvest, and that allows for rapid regrowth, which can result in more cuts and higher yields. In fact, 25 to 40 percent higher, according to the folks at Netafim. And from Netafim, we're talking to their director of sales for the West, Todd Rinkenberger. And Todd, are you seeing more and more alfalfa growers interested in subsurface drip? We definitely are. And a lot of our focus is in uh, place in California, in the Western states, to in terms of trying to, to drive the conversion of drip uh, irrigation and alfalfa. But yeah, we are seeing a lot more interest. A lot of it's driven by what you've already stated, with the, which is the 
very recognizable increase in yields. But also the, one of the other things with the drought that we're in that's uh, causing people to look at drip irrigation for this crop is water savings. And we're seeing up to 30% water savings at times as well. So it's, again, pretty dramatic uh, benefits for producers from what we see at this point. Now, this sounds a little uh, heretical coming from a drip irrigation person, but uh, you're encouraging alfalfa growers that before they rip out their sprinklers or their flood irrigation, they may want to keep those handy if they are transitioning to subsurface drip irrigation if they're doing fall planting. Yeah, and it's actually even more than if they're transitioning. Anytime you're establishing alfalfa for drip irrigation, you've got to get a well-established stand. And one of the things that we've noted, and I'll talk in more detail about this as we go through this, is that one of the most important parts of getting off to a good start is getting that stand established with sprinklers. Because when you're using buried drip, the drip tubing is placed at 8 to 10 inches below the surface of the soil. And um, it takes a while for the root development to occur to meet the wetted front that, that is created by drip irrigation. So we were very, very focused. And we prefer sprinklers for farmers to continue to establish their stand using um, hand-move aluminum or full-coverage aluminum sprinklers to just get the crop off to a good and uniform start. And it's not for just starting the crop. They should continue to use those sprinklers for a set amount of time in order to develop a deep root system, correct? Yeah, what we're trying to do, and one of the problems that we've seen, if you look at, um, we're, we're putting the drip tubing, like I said, 8 to 10 inches deep, and the laterals of the drip tubing are about 40 inches apart. One of the problems we've seen, if you remove the sprinklers too soon and you don't have the roots from the newly established alfalfa actually getting into the moisture that's being provided by the drip, you end up with what we'll call some corrugation. So as you look across the field at the early part of the next growing season, you actually see kind of a wavy effect. It takes two or three months to overcome unless you do a good job up front in the fall when you establish of, of putting several shots of sprinkler irrigation on again, to drive water down, drive root development to the point where it actually touches the water that's being provided by the drip. But the drip water at that depth of tubing placement of 8 to 10 inches doesn't come uh, nearly as close to the surface as some people think. How long then should uh, alfalfa growers keep their sprinkler systems intact? What we see is um, at least three irrigation cycles in, in the fall. And, you know, that may mean that an irrigation cycle every two to three weeks until they get that well-established uh, root zone that, again, where the water is actually, and the roots are actually now touching the the, uh, the wetted band or the wetted area that's coming from the drip. But it's not something that they that it that needs to be left in beyond that. What we where we really see problems is that producers, even if they do use um, sprinklers to establish their stand, they irrigate once and move on, and that's where we really see a, a, a problem with not getting as uniform a development of the stand to begin with. But usually three applications is enough. Um, in some cases, if it's a really dry fall, which I, I know we all don't hope for that to happen, um, it can be a little longer than that, especially in the southern part of the state. Of course, the number of cuts of alfalfa depend on where you're farming in California, but with subsurface drip irrigation, you're seeing an increase in faster regrowth, so you're going to get more cuts per year, aren't you? Yeah, we do see uh, at least one more cut per year in most parts of California. And the fast regrowth, kind of what the real driver for that is, 
the fact that we are not going through a drought cycle like you would if you're using flood irrigation. So every cutting with alfalfa, if you're flood irrigating, you've got at least sometimes 17 to 20 days between irrigation that's tied to that harvest window. And what we try to do is with drip irrigation is keep that window as narrow as possible, 10 to 12 days. And sometimes it's a little less than that. And so we actually end up with better, much better water status in the active root zone. <clears throat> so as soon as you cut, you see a lot more active regrowth of that alfalfa as, um, as it's starting to, to regrow for the for next harvest before you even remove the, uh, the bales from the field. And I would imagine, too, there would be improved uniformity of growth. Absolutely. I mean, if it, again, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, as long as you do a great job of managing the, the initial irrigations with the sprinklers to get a good uniform stand and good uniform root development, we do see a very high uniformity in terms of looking across the field in terms of yield and stand um, as the crop goes forward, for sure. And right now I can hear farmers all over California screaming at their radio saying, what about gophers? What about squirrels? Yeah, rodents are one of the real challenges um, for buried drip systems. And they're more of a challenge in a non-cultivated crop like alfalfa. I mean, alfalfa is actually a very good uh, refuge for, for especially gophers because it's a good food source and there's no cultivation. Um the, the thing is with gophers and other rodents, but gophers in particular with alfalfa, is you know you gotta you gotta be vigilant. You gotta stay on top of it. <clears throat> but you also can't start with a field that's so horribly infested that it, <clears throat> you're never going to get ahead of yourself or ahead of the problem. But really, truly, you've got to pull out all the stops and use all the tools that are available to farmers to, to manage their their gopher population. I mean, it's it's trapping, it's baiting, putting up owl boxes, but it's <clears throat> not doing them when you have time. It's being on a regimen to do them consistently through the growing season. And I think where we've seen the greatest amount of challenges is when there hasn't been that consistency. And a lot of times one of the most overlooked periods that's um, great for for managing rodents is the fall and getting into the early winter months where you don't have a lot of regrowth of alfalfa, you can actually get back into the field and, and set a trap and get back and, and reset traps one, two, three times in a short window of time because you don't have active growth of alfalfa and actually try and get a good confirmed eradication or kill on the individual targeted areas where you've got problems. But, you know, if you look at the normal growing season, you do have some real limitations to what you can do in terms of um, being out there to, to, to scout as well as um, treat whether, whatever method you're going to use for gophers because you do have such rapid regrowth after you cut. So you, you may only have the opportunity to go after uh, an area of infestation once during an individual cutting, se- uh, cutting cycle during the growing season. But again, it really comes down to, to being vigilant, using all the tools available, and, and you got to use all the tools available just because there's no one thing that's perfectly effective. So... Um, Kind of that's the the short story on on rodents. You know, if you go to our website, we've got a brochure, um, also a kind of a knowledge piece that talks about all the different things that need to be done to effectively manage rodent populations. 
All right, and that uh, website would be netafimusa.com, I imagine. That's correct. You got it. All we right. actually have a full page dedicated to uh, alfalfa with store testimonials, some uh, an alfalfa production manual that's uh, very uh, inclusive and very detailed, and uh, just a lot of good information for farmers to, to dig into if they're looking at this as a solution for their operation. And for those that don't know, Netafim is spelled N-E-T-A-F-I-M. Netafimusa.com is the website for more information about their subsurface drip irrigation systems widely used throughout the world. Todd Rinkenberger of Netafim USA, thanks for a few minutes of your time today. Thank you very much, Fred. As you're probably aware, bees account for one-third of food production, especially here in California. Bees pollinate a wide variety of vegetables, fruits, and nuts, and even plants grown for seed production, including sunflowers, melons, and carrots. But with colony collapse disorder and more difficulty getting honeybees into California, Farmers here are relying more and more on native bees, but how do you get native bees to your farm? Well, the answer may be closer than you think. We're talking with Rachel Long, Cooperative Extension Advisor based in Woodland. Her specialties include pest management, agronomy, dry beans, alfalfa, water quality, and oil seed crops. Recently, she had a paper published in the Journal of Economic Entomology about how really there can be some really good cost benefits to doing some very simple things. And Rachel, let's talk a little bit about native bees and the role they play in pollinating California's crops. I'm really just thrilled to uh, to be able to share some of the uh, the, the research and the data that uh, my colleagues and I have been collecting for, gosh, about the past 25 years, so for, for most of my career, on uh, just on native bees, other beneficial insects like predators, and how to how to actually increase those on farms. Um, so that you do get enhanced uh, pollination of your crop and also pest control uh, in light of the uh, colony collapse disorder that's really, really tremendously affecting our um, our, our honeybee pollinators to, uh, to ensure good pollination of our crops. Are we talking about hedgerows or just wildflower strips? So this can be both. The, uh, that, uh, that, uh, for, for native bees, we have, gosh, you know, over a thousand different species of native bees. Um, that, that are here in, in California and that have always been here. The honeybee is actually introduced from Europe, but, but we have a whole, whole group of these native bees uh, that, that do exist here that are very, very important pollinators for, for many of our different crops. And, uh, and these native bees, the reason we don't see them or notice them as much is because they don't form these large colonies like honeybees do, we you know where we can move them around in hives. And instead, the native bees, they either nest in the soil, so underground where they excavate these cavities and pack cells with pollen for their, for their young, for the larvae, or they'll nest in, uh, in like twigs, especially, especially vacated, you know, or created by, by bark beetles that create these mines. So they'll, that the, the, these, uh, these bees are, the native bees are either nesting, you know, above ground in twigs and such and plant material or underground. And, and there's three key 
areas to focus on for bringing those native bees back to our farms, and one is to provide floral resources. So in other words, flowering plants that bloom throughout the year. Secondly is that nesting habitat that you don't want to disc, you know, everywhere and destroy those underground burrows or too much, do too much clearing of habitat. And then three, we need to to make sure that the uh, native bees are protected from pesticides. Now, I have noticed in previous studies about the benefits of using native bees uh, in conjunction with honeybees, that native bees can actually help the honeybees sort of expand their territory as far as pollination. Yeah, that's what's so neat about native bees is that, you know, the, the one is that they, they're actually out foraging earlier than honeybees. They can seem to tolerate uh, cooler temperatures, so they're out first thing in the morning. Oftentimes, this is, you know, when flowers are opening, so you really, really get uh, great pollination. They seem to tolerate more wind. So whereas honeybees might not go out if it's too windy, your native bees will be out there uh, foraging around. Uh, they, they're also really important for um, that, they, that they're more efficient pollinators. They carry more pollen. They have, you know, more hairs, and they're really good at uh, carrying a lot of pollen around and more hairs like on their legs and their body. And then also what's really fascinating is that, uh, is that they, they actually cause honeybees to disperse more in the field. So in other words, you know, you really you really want to get that cross-pollination when you put bees out there, honeybees out there. You really want to make sure that those bees are moving around as much as possible. And oftentimes honeybees can be really methodical and they'll just, you know, take a line of trees like, like you know, apples or almonds and they'll go straight down the row and, uh, but they won't cross the trees and, and, you know, carry pollinate, pollen, you know, between the two different uh, varieties of almonds. And, uh, and so, but when, when they come in contact with a, a native bee out there, they, uh, um, there's, there's an interaction that goes on, whether it's territorial or, because I've seen them, you know, like I've watched these bees, and when they do come in, when honeybees come in contact with native bees, it's like there's this uh, territorial dispute, and, uh, and then that causes the... Uh, the honeybee to forget what it's doing, and then it oftentimes then will will move to the adjacent uh, field or, or row crop or, or orchard and and allow for uh, for better pollination. It's just really interesting and fun to watch what's going on out there with these native bees. Now we know that native bees have the habitat in the ground, and of course they like the pollen on the crops. But uh, don't they need other sources of nectar too? And that's the reason for having wildflower strips or uh, hedgerows. Certainly, that uh, that the native bees as well as the honeybees are, are using using both the nectar and pollen. The native bees really are using pollen more for uh, for packing their nests for their young, um, but they both of them definitely use uh, use nectar and pollen, and and the nectar is certainly a good reward. And and for the honeybees, you know, the uh, the, the the really importance of these wildflowers is that it diversifies their diet, and uh, and and if they have a really good you know diversified strong diet, then then the honey bees will will tend to be you know a lot a lot stronger and able to withstand uh, some of the issues of colony collapse you know which is basically pesticides and lack of good nutrition and also mites and diseases so the purpose of these uh, the, these flowering plants around farms including both you know shrubs or uh, and also wildflowers is is to uh, certainly provide habitat and food and and uh, safe havens from pesticides for all bees uh, not just the uh, not just the native bees but the honeybees as well there's an old saying that to attract native bees you need to put in native plants is that true on the farm as well i, I don't 
think they necessarily have to be native plants. One of the one of the beauties of having the native plants is that they're just so drought tolerant, and uh, and particularly now, where, you know, water is certainly a scarcity out there. That uh, that if we can put in plants on on farms or even in you know our backyards that that require minimal amount of water. Boy, are we just you know way ahead? And I, I was really excited to see that uh, that on some farms uh, here in Yolo County that there's now you know plantings of uh, summer annuals and perennials that that don't need you know summertime water. And so, for example, uh, that uh, that that there's Grindelia, which is also called gumweed, um, which can be planted you know on the edges of fields that just bloom terrifically in the summer without any water, or the bolander sunflower. Uh, some vinegar weed, um, summer lupin, and uh, so I'm really excited to to see you know not just the uh, the winter annuals, um, but some of these summer these summer wildflower plantings that that can tolerate really dry conditions and yet uh, yet persist and do well and bloom and attract tons of bees. It's very fun to see. Of course, no plant has a, a, a long extended bloom that would last through two or three seasons. So I imagine it's a, a series of plants with a succession of bloom that work best. Yes, that's that's really the key. And so uh, so if you're going for like a wildflower uh, planting that uh, that you certainly want some that are you know blooming as early as you can in the year that attract in a lot of bees and and there's a number of different mixes you know like Fisalia or poppies or some of the lupin or clarkia and those are you know really early bloomers and then you move on to the uh, to the to the later spring and early summer and uh, and then on into the fall so you do want to have plants that uh, that bloom all year long so that you're providing a, uh, a pollen and nectar for these uh, for the bees and and even you know even in the winter like you know you think okay well you know the bees are dormant and and a lot certainly a lot of, of bees are but it's amazing you know that there's with our warmer winters that we've been having that there is a bee activity and uh, and shrubs are important too and and they uh, you know that they uh, that they're on the edges of fields as well so you're not taking crops out of production and you're not competing with you know with uh, light nutrients and such for adjacent crops but you know, things like manzanita and red bud which is just glorious in the spring with those uh, with the the uh, sort of the purple flowers and uh, buckwheat is good in the summer and uh, an organ grape and such and so these uh, these are all all really really important to include with the uh, with the wildflower mixes so that you do have nectar and pollen available to these native bees year-round Coming up, we talk with Rachel Long about the cost of establishing one of these wildflower or hedgerow strips to attract pollinators and how long it's going to take for you to break even. We're talking with University of California Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor Rachel Long about how wildflower plantings on farms can benefit bees as well as crop pollination. But let's talk about the money it takes to establish one of these wildflower plantings. I would think any farmer listening to this is going to say right off the bat, okay, what's this going to cost me? How long is it going to take for me to break even on this project? Mm -hmm. Not that many farms have hedgerows established. It's kind of sad. But uh, you had a recent study published in the Journal of Economic Entomology about the pest control and pollination cost benefit of hedgerow restoration mm -hmm. in a simplified agricultural landscape. And simply by doing a little addition, you can really break uh, or bring that break even point down a, a, a number of years. 
Yeah, we're just so excited to have uh, published this uh, this paper, and uh, and we did uh, research for for several years looking at the the impact that these hedgerows of flowering plants could have on bringing in beneficial insects, including like the parasitoid wasps and lady beetles that that prey upon pests, as well as the uh, as well as increasing native bees on farms. And these hedgerows do work. I mean, they do cost money to put in. So, for example, to put in a, a hedgerow that might be say a thousand feet long, and uh, you know, 15 feet wide. Um, that's going to cost roughly about 4000 to put in. So that's definitely an investment. But what our data show is that, that those hedgerows can pay off within between like 7 or 15 years, uh, uh, depending on, uh, for example, if it's just pest control services, like you don't have a pollinator-dependent crop right there next to it. So just for pest control services, that uh, that the export of the parasitoid wasps that are feeding on on some of the uh, aphids and caterpillar pests that uh, that some growers who have a hedgerow don't have to spray as much and so that results in a in a cost savings and so that hedgerow can pay off in about 15 years if you add in the pollination benefits from native bees particularly where you don't have enough honeybees to provide adequate pollination that drops that time down to about 7 years and uh, so again so so you know depending on the services that you need on the farm these hedgerows are, are are actually cost effective. It takes a little while, but um, but you get all kinds of uh, other benefits uh, on the uh, on the farm as well. I mean, you get these gorgeous you know hedgerow plantings, and particularly for the migratory uh, birds that come through here in both the summer and the winter, it's uh, that they that they really use and depend on those hedgerows as well. It's that little while that farmers may be wondering about as far how long does it take to establish those wildflower strips or those hedgerows in order to be mm-hmm. fully effective. I would think that in the few years uh, between mm-hmm. planting and full establishment, you have mm-hmm. weed control costs, and you may yeah. still have, as you pointed out, you may still have to do some insecticide spraying in order to control a certain number of of, of the bad guys. However, mm-hmm. how do you spray and yet maintain a beneficial insect population? So the uh, the beneficial insects are are definitely in your hedgerow, and you're not spraying your hedgerow. I hope not, anyways. <laughs> you shouldn't be, and uh, and so uh, so that's a refuge, and uh, and it's a place where the beneficial insects are building up and then moving into the adjacent crop. So so it is true that you know that when when you do have to spray a crop, like if you have you know clearly have pests that are going to impact the uh, the yields and the quality of your of your product. Uh, that uh, sometimes you do have to spray. So number one, certainly choose a pesticide that has minimal impact to uh, beneficial insects. And the UCIPM website has really, really good information on uh, impacts of different pesticides to our beneficial insects, including the bees and also the, uh, the our predators and parasitoids. So, so you definitely want want to look at that. And then, and then, and then the neat thing is, is that you know, if you do, if some beneficial insects certainly are killed off um, by the by the pesticides, which you know could, which definitely could happen, then you're you're more likely to get recolonization of beneficial insects uh, uh, sooner if you have a hedgerow than if you don't have one. Are there any farms available for other farmers to go see hedgerows in action? You know, there, um, there's actually a, a, the best place to really go see some fantastic hedgerows would be hedgerow farms. 
uh, here in, in Yolo County, and uh, they're they're over on the in Winters on the the west side, um, just uh, to the uh, to the west of uh, Winters. And and if you call Hedgerow Farms and ask to get a tour, I'm sure they'd just be delighted to take uh, to take people out and show them around. There are a lot of benefits to establishing hedgerows, wildflower strips to attract pollinators and beneficial insects. And I think we're going to see more and more in the future that getting established in California's farms. I think that uh, that it's, it's going to be uh, really, really important in the future for if we're looking for ways to to truly uh, um, increase our native bees uh, on farms and uh, and these wildflower plantings and uh, hedgerows of shrubs really play a critical role in uh, in certainly in in maintaining a good good bee health and uh, and there's uh, there's really lots of fabulous information out there through the Xerces Society um, through um, through UC Cooperative Extension and, and my office. And, uh, and, you know, if, if uh, anybody is interested, then, uh, then I'd really, truly be glad to, uh, to, to talk with uh, people about this. It's Rachel Long, Yolo County Farm Advisor, also advises in Sacramento and Solano counties. And Rachel, thank you for a few minutes of your time. And thank you for having me. And now it's quiz time. Yes, what food are we talking about? Here are the clues. First, tomatoes. Laura, you, you just leaked the answer. You didn't wait for the clever clues. You just blurt. Oh, well, that was Laura Popilski. We're out here at the Agriculture Department's Farmer's Market in the Vegetation Tent here, and Laura's telling everybody about... Laura, this is where you are supposed to say it, okay, about... Tomatoes. Yes, which have a wild history and have been controversial from the very beginning. Coming up on this edition of Agriculture USA... We're investigating those tomatoes. Tomatoes. You like tomatoes and I like tomatoes. Let's not get into that. Let's just get on with Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. Let's call the whole thing off. First, some history. Let's consider Thomas Jefferson, who really gets only one good song in that musical Hamilton. So what did I miss? He grew tomatoes. Jefferson was actually quite a trailblazer because at that point, people were kind of afraid of tomatoes. Tomatoes had a rather grim reputation. First, botanically. Tomatoes are in the nightshade family. Uh, yeah, and that's usually preceded by the word deadly. Yeah, you're right. Uh-huh. If you're eating the stems and the leaves, that has the poisonous alkaloid in it, but that poison is really only poisonous to insects. It's a defense mechanism for the plant, but it's not going to hurt you. Uh, but try telling that to people in Europe in the 1600s. Now, explorers brought back tomatoes from their place of origin in South America, but they were too expensive for all but aristocrats to eat. But they Then, many of those aristocrats started dying and tomatoes were blamed. Attack of the killer tomatoes. Yes, exactly, but tomatoes were falsely accused. It turns out that in the 15 and 1600s in Europe, many rich people ate off pewter plates, which had a lot of lead in them. The acid in the tomatoes caused leaching out of the lead into the food and was lead poisoning that did the killing. Nevertheless, even into the 1800s in America, some people still would not eat tomatoes, but that has certainly changed. And they are the number two most eaten vegetable in the U.S., right behind the potato. The average American eating 77 pounds of tomatoes a year. One reason for tomatoes' popularity, flavor, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but Laura, you also say they're packed with nutrients, vitamins, lycopene, which is a powerful antioxidant. But enough of science. Let us hear wise words from our tomato guru, the immaculate Laura Popilski. Knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. 
Uh, yeah, philosophy galore, I think. So, Laura, can you uh, rewind that and give me that uh, proverb one more time? Knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. But uh, aren't tomatoes actually vegetables? Let's go to a trusted reference source, the 1978 film classic attack of the killer tomatoes. This is man versus vegetable. Tomatoes are fruit. And Laura, which is it? A tomato is a fruit, since it is a ripened ovary of a plant. Mm, maybe, but let's go back to 1883. Congress passes a law putting a tax on imported vegetables, but not on fruit. Now, John Nix is a food importer. He sues the Port of New York and its tax guy, Mr. Hedden, for all the tax he had paid over the years on all the tomatoes he had imported, because, as Laura pointed out... A tomato is a fruit. Yeah, so the case goes all the way... <laughs> to the Supreme Court. And how did that 1893 case come out, Laura? The Supreme Court ruled that tomatoes are considered vegetables. Well, the court ruled that technically tomatoes are fruits, but for practical purposes they're eaten as and treated as a vegetable. And Laura, on the treatment of tomatoes, once we buy them, get them home, they should go in the uh, fridge, right? They should not go in the fridge. Why should they not go in the fridge? Because when they go in the fridge, they won't taste as good and their texture gets not so enjoyable either. So tomatoes are best left on your countertop, and they can stay on your countertop about a week or so. Now, as to some ways to prepare tomatoes, millions of them, of course, but Laura says, take your tomato and stuff it. Hollow out a larger tomato and fill it with your favorite kind of rice and bean mixture. Top it with cheese and bake it. Ooh. Stuffed tomato. And then you just cook the whole cook thing. Cook the whole thing. For tons more great ways to use tomatoes, including throwing them at bad stage. <laughs> Performers, got me good there. Go online, look for choosemyplate.gov. Choosemyplate.gov. We got time for a tomato joke. Yeah? Oh, here's a good one. Okay. Why did the tomato blush? because he saw the salad dressing. Ooh. Might have been better if it was he saw the undressed salad, but anyway. I got more, I got more. No time, no time. From the USDA's Farmer's Market in Washington. What do you do with lazy tomatoes? In Washington, D.C. can them. They're going to can you, I think. This edition of Agriculture USA, mercifully, is over. This is Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.